Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And we're continuing uh, from where we left off two weeks ago in the life of David and lessons from this man of God. When we think of David and we think of the high points of his life, I suppose I think of David and Goliath, you know, when he destroys him and slays him. Some of us might think that was a high point of his life. Certainly, it was a pretty high point, no doubt. Some might say it was the time in which he secured Jerusalem, you know, and took it from the Jebusites and set it up as Israel's capital. That might be the time, and it's the time in which he was anointed king the third time and thus became king over all Israel, the uh, tribes in the north that were loyal to Saul, And, of course, the tribes in the south had already been loyal to him. That might have been a high point in his life. Maybe at some point during the writing of his psalms, we might look at David and say, no, this moment when he wrote this particular psalm was the high point of his life. And there were a variety of good points in his life, no doubt. I think that perhaps chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is indeed the high point of David's life. I say it's the high point because what he does in this chapter is in many respects of the greatest character exhibited in his entire life. He exhibits a character that is central to the character of God. And I think it's the reason why He is referred to as a man after God's own heart. He exhibits the kind of heart God has in this chapter. The kind of heart that he exhibits is a heart that would be defined as a heart of grace. That is the key word in this chapter. It occurs three times. In my translation, it's translated by the word kindness. But in the Hebrew, it's the word chesed, loving kindness. God's great mercy uh, toward others is how this word is used. When we think of the word grace, there are a variety of thoughts that we might consider. For example, when I think of the word grace, I usually think of queens, you know, the queen of England and referring to her as my grace, you know, because there the word grace refers to a position of dignity, a female position of dignity, although I guess, you know, it's used with men as well. 
Sometimes we'll watch dancers, our dancers perhaps, ballerinas, professional dancers, the uh, Shun Yun, is that how you pronounce it? You know, the Chinese dance. I've never seen that, but people have seen it and said, it's uncanny what these guys do. I did go to a Cirque du Soleil, and they were out of their minds. You know, not just uncanny. It's like, are you kidding me? And you look at some of the way that these people can move their bodies, and you say they move with incredible grace, you know? And so the word sometimes... Uh, And I like to use a word, you know, I think of football. Some might remember this running back, Gail Sayers, who ran like a gazelle. He must have been one of the most beautiful running backs, the way that he carried the ball and just moved through uh, the line. He is known for running in such a manner. Or if you've seen like Beckham, you know, that classic catch of his, this one-handed catch in the end zone, you say, oh man, what grace this guy has exhibited. But the word grace in the Bible is so different. It doesn't mean, you know, the dignity of someone or the position of someone or the movement of someone. Grace, we oftentimes hear, is defined as unmerited favor. That is to say, good pleasure given by another without any expectation of anything in return. In other words, the kind of grace the Bible speaks of is a kind of goodness and kindness and generosity that is exhibited without it being earned, without it ever being paid back, without it ever being deserved. That's the kind of grace, or that's what the word charis in Greek or chesed in Hebrew means to convey. And perhaps, perhaps, the greatest illustration of that in the entire Hebrew scriptures is right here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Apart from the giving of Messiah's own life in our behalf, perhaps it's the greatest illustration of it in the entire Bible. So let me read this for you. In chapter 9, there's not that many verses, just 15 or 13 or so. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? There it is right at the front end. Chesed, loving kindness. And by the way, I, I didn't mention this, but oftentimes when I was a teacher back east, And I was teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers, upper schoolers. And we would talk about grace and mercy. And the question would come up, what is the difference between grace and mercy? And I remember one of our other Bible teachers having shared this in a chapel. And so I figured I would steal it. After all, theft is the highest form of flattery. So I said to my students, well, you remember when Mr. Bitzer shared this in Uh, chapel, he said, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And if you're sort of swirling that in your mind, wonder, well, that just tells you what Mr. Bitzer was like. Very confusing guy. No, he wasn't. He was very clear in his teaching. But I think this makes a lot of sense. Grace is something God gives us. It's getting something. It's getting God's good favor. Grace is getting something that we do not deserve to have. 
That's what grace is. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. What do we deserve? The judgment of God. The fact that we do not get the judgment of God is a manifestation of the mercy of God that he does not give us what we do deserve. But rather, he gives us what we don't deserve, and that is his chesed, his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy. And so here at the very front end, David is asking this question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, you have to understand, we're at a point in David's life where things are stable. You know what it's like when things are unstable in your life? You know, it's like, what is going on? You know, how do we make any sense of this? Why is this happening How do I deal with it? It can be some of the most confusing moments in our lives. Sometimes it's because, well, we lose our job. And Carlton was sharing with me some of the struggles he and his family have had to go through in the past when he was out on the street. And you have to ask yourself, where do I go from here? Some of us have had to deal with illnesses in our own lives or in loved ones' lives, and we wonder, how are we going to manage this? How are we going to pay for it? What's going to happen to this person that is dealing with physical problems or emotional problems or addictive kinds of problems? What do we do with all this stuff? The most confusing times in our lives are when these disruptions and eruptions occur, sometimes without a moment's notice. Sometimes we see it coming and we can't do anything about it. We can't get out of the way. We see it. We know something's got to give and we can't help the situation in our own behalf. But when things are at peace, it's a great time, isn't it? It's like, where did this come from? You know, and what a wonderful moment it is. David's life is so interesting to me because it's like that. Up until this point in David's life, it has been chaos. It has been chaos. He's been on the run from a man who's wanted to kill him, who had all the power to do it, all the means to do it, and he's running for some 13 years or so in fear of his life. Not just a week or two weeks or a few months or a year, but 13 years having to always look over your shoulder wondering if he'll ever catch up to me. And if he does, what is he going to do? But now David's life has taken a change. It has taken a turn. And no longer is he looking over his shoulder. No longer is he running. He is at peace. No longer is he clamoring for anything. He's the king of a united Israel, the tribes in the north and the tribes in the south. And when there is peace, then you can think, then you can consider, then you can reflect, then you can plan, then you can really hope. And so David is at a place of peace in his life. It says he's the king of all Israel. It says that God gave him rest from all of his enemies. 
It says that he had now established his armies in fortified sections of of the nation, and there are no fears of attack. And so because he, has now, he is now at a place of repose, he can think. And what does he think about? He thinks about, is there anyone in Saul's family that he can be gracious to, that he can do a kindness for? Why is he thinking about that? He's a man after God's own heart, and he has made certain promises, and he is going to keep his word. If you look back in first, Second Samuel, or I should say First Samuel chapter 20, you will remember when David was on the run that Jonathan said he would inquire of his father whether or not Saul was con- continuing to go after him, whether or not he was committed to finding him and killing him. Jonathan said, I will let you know what my father's up to. And if I don't, may it ever be, may it ever happen to me and more. So he's promising David, I'm going to let you know what my father's up to. And when he learns that his father is up to going after David, Jonathan tells David his father is committed committed to killing him. And Jonathan says to David, But remember me when you ascend to the throne at that. And he says this phrase. I don't know if I'm getting it exactly right, but it's in 1 Samuel uh, 20, verses 13, 14, 15 in there. He says to him that uh, remember me when you become king that I not die. Now, the reason he's saying that is because whenever a dynasty came to the throne, all previous heirs to the throne would be taken care of so that they're no longer a threat. And so Jonathan is saying to David, right now my father is on the throne, I'm the inheritor. But when you are on the throne, would you see to it that no one attempts to take my life in order to secure your dynasty on the throne. David promises Jonathan that he would see to it that his life is spared, not just once, but he promises Jonathan twice, that he would see to it that Jonathan's life and his family are spared. Later, the second time that Saul pursues David, David spares Saul's life a second time. And on the second occurrence, I think it's 1 Samuel 24, Saul says to David, you're a better man than I am because you spared my life. And he says to David, surely you will go onto the throne. And when you do, spare my family. And David promises Saul, that he would spare his family as well. Unfortunately, when the Philistines attack Israel, Saul is killed in battle, as are all his sons. The only descendant of Saul, and for that matter, Saul's son Jonathan, is a man by the name of Mephibosheth. 
And so now David is asking the question. You know, I made this promise not only to Jonathan twice, but I made the promise to Saul as well that I would spare their family. And so he inquires of his counselors in chapter 9 at the very first verse. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Has anyone survived? And so he says, now there was a servant, reading verse 2, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. They called him to David. And David the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show, second time, chesed, kindness of God to him? And Ziba says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, of course, that raises the question. Why does Ziba tell David that he's crippled? David asked, interestingly enough, David asked, is there anyone? Notice he didn't mention any kind of qualifications. Is there anyone with money that is still left? Is there anyone who is still powerful? Is there anyone of any significance? No, he just says, is there anyone? I don't care who he is. I don't care who she might be. I don't care what their assets are. I don't care what their abilities are or aren't. I have a promise to keep to both David and Saul regarding their family, and I want to keep that promise. Has, is there anyone still alive, or has Saul's family been wiped out? Ziba was Saul's servant, so he's called. And Ziba tells him, there is a son of Saul, a grandson. There is a son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth, but, he says, he's crippled in his feet. So two things. How did he get crippled? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you'll find that when the Philistines were attacking Saul, that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, he was only like five years old at the time. And his nurse, or one assigned to take care of him, was running to pick him up to get him out of harm's way. And as he picked him up, somehow she tripped, fell, dropped the boy. And in dropping the boy, he became a cripple in his feet for the rest of his life. That's how he became crippled. But why does he tell David he's crippled? Well, I think here Ziba is telling David he's crippled because he's telling David. He doesn't know why David wants to know. He just wants to, he, all he said was, is there anyone still alive in Saul's family? Ziba may be thinking, Saul, David wants to kill him because he wants to end any threats to his throne for his family. So when Ziba says he's crippled, he's telling him he's not a threat. Don't worry about him. I think that's why he may have mentioned that. But that's not the only place where he's mentioned in this section being crippled. If you look back, you will see in um, you you will see he, he says it one other place. It's not, I'm not finding it right away. But if you look at verse 13, it says Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. See, I think the first time he's mentioned as being lame in both his feet by Ziba was to tell David not to worry about him. But I think this last time he's told that he was lame 
in his feet was to tell us something about David, that David didn't care what his limitations were. David didn't care what his weaknesses were. All he cared about was fulfilling his promise to Jonathan and Saul. So Ziba tells him about Mephibosheth. The king said to him, where is he? Verse 4. And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Davar. That's interesting too. The Hebrew word Lo means no. And the word Daver is the word for pasture, the word for shepherd field. So Lo-Daver means this was an area that was not very green, not a pasture, not a field. In other words, he was out in the desert somewhere. He's out in the dust. Why is he out there? He's hiding from David. Those that are watching over him are telling him, you don't want David to know you're alive because if he knows, he's going to seek to come after you. So where did they put put Mephibosheth? They're trying to save his life. So they've put him in an area that certainly no one will know. He's like hiding out. But it's come to David's attention that he's alive. And so David says, where is he? And in verse 5, then the king David sent, brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amimiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So you can see what's going on in Mephibosheth's mind. He's thinking the king, well, you can imagine, there he is out in the wilderness somewhere, and the king's soldiers knock on the door, and there is looking for our Mephibosheth. They're saying, we're looking for Mephibosheth. Where is he? Why are there soldiers knocking on my door? You know, what do they want with me? He's got to be thinking the worst. And that whole trip from where he was living to David's palace must have been froth with stress, anxiety, and worry. He must have been counting how much longer he had to live. And when he comes before David and David says, are you the son of Saul? Are you the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan? Are you, are you him? He throws himself down on the ground. Notice it's not because he can't walk. He falls. It says he threw himself down and he pays him homage. He pays him respect as the king. And he simply says, behold, I am your servant. And these words must have just been you know, just peace to his heart. David says, do not fear, for I will show you, there's a third time, chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I mean, this is amazing. He said, first of all, everything that your family owned is yours, but you don't have to work at all. You're going to stay with me. You're going to be provided by me. When it says you're going to eat at my table, it doesn't just mean, okay, breakfast, dinner, and lunch, you can come on in. It means I'm going to take care of you. And what I have is yours. And so he says to him, and Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So he can't move. So he can only grovel on the ground. And that was the second uh, statement about his weakness that I wanted to 
point out. I couldn't find it right away. But first of all, he's told that he's crippled. Second of all, he himself speaks of himself as a dead dog. And then thirdly, it is just mentioned that he's lame again. But now notice, then the king called Ziba. So if it was just that you're going to own everything your father owned, but you're going to be taken care of by me, that would be great. We wouldn't even think any further. We'd just, David, thank you, man. And I'd be saying, please get me out of here quickly before he changes his mind, you know. But he'd just say, this is awesome. But David says, wait, 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 I'm not finished yet. All that belonged to Saul, verse 9, and to all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. He's talking to Ziba. And he's saying to Ziba, everything your master, Saul, had, And everything that your master's grandson or son had, everything belongs to Mephibosheth. And he says to him, you and your sons and your servants will take care of the land for him. You'll bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now look at this. Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. They should be able to take care of it all. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. People are not going to not do what David tells them. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Imagine that, you know, there he is with, well, think of all the sons of David, Absalom and Amnon and his daughter and all of his family. He had 21 kids. You know, when you consider all that is said about his wives and his concubines and his children, he's got like 20-something kids. And they all come in to eat at his table. And then there's Mephibosheth, you know, joining. I mean, this is nuts, right? This is amazing. And so Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table, but he was lame in both his feet. In other words, it didn't matter for David because he was taking care of him. Now, the reason I think this is such a great passage is because it's a passage on grace. Mephibosheth didn't deserve anything. Mephibosheth didn't earn anything. And Mephibosheth couldn't repay anything David was now giving him. And what an, what an amazing illustration of God's grace to us. Think about this. First of all, we as human beings, like Mephibosheth, are terribly crippled. He was crippled in both his feet, but we are crippled in every aspect of our lives. We are in need of God's grace, right? Because we are dead in trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians. We're not merely crippled by our sins. We're not merely weakened by our sins. It says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are fully alienated from God and there is no hope. Just like Mephibosheth had fallen and was crippled, we in Adam and Eve have fallen and we are more than crippled. We are dead. Like Mephibosheth, who hid out in the desert, we too are in a desert land, in a desert place, without green, without hope, we are lost, unless God does something for us. Unless, like David, 
he sends a servant to inquire, is there anyone that has need for grace? And the servant learns there is someone who has a need for grace. And when I think of our suffering servant who comes into our world firsthand, experiences the fall, although he himself is not a sinner, but he experiences the fallenness that sin has brought into our world. Remember, Yeshua got tired even as we get tired. Yeshua got hungry even as we get hungry. Yeshua also died even as you and I one day will die. He experienced firsthand all the crippledness, all the deadness apart from his own not being a sinner. He experienced it all and he bore it all for us and therefore could extend grace like David extended to Mephibosheth. And what is this grace like? I mean, just like Mephibosheth, who didn't deserve the kindness of David, just like Mephibosheth, who could not repay it nor earned it, that's true for you and I. We can't repay what God has done for us. Although I love that Bob Dylan song, What Can I Do For You? We can serve him, but we can only serve him in the power of his spirit as he enables us to serve. And we can't even do that unless he enables us and helps us to serve. But the point is what God has given us has been unearned, undeserved, and we can never pay it back even in all of eternity. But what is this grace like? Just as David takes Saul, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, and he says, everything that Saul had is yours. What does Messiah say? Everything that's been given to me is mine. You know, everything I have is yours. All power and authority has been given unto me, and I give it unto you, and call you, command you, as it were, to use it to make disciples. All that's given unto me, I give unto you. But he does even more than that. Because like Mephibosheth, who has everything that Saul has, he gets to eat at the king's table every day. <laughs> you know? So while everything that's given to Messiah is given to us, we also get to eat at the king's table every day, every moment, anytime. We can come into the throne of grace with boldness in any time, and for any kind of need. That's the grace that God has given to us. And there's nothing we can do to get it. It can only be received by faith. For it is by grace, Paul says, that we are saved, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And he says that no man may boast in his sight. So when I read a passage like 2 Samuel 9, I conclude this is the high point of David's life where he shows grace to one who has great need for it. And what an illustration of the greater son of David who would show us the same kind or maybe I should say even a greater kind of grace than David could ever show to anyone else, let alone to Mephibosheth.
So the question we all must ask ourselves is, have we received that grace? Have we come out of the desert and come into the king's palace and thrown ourselves before him and just humbly said, I am your servant. And unless you raise me up, I'm nothing but a dead dog. And unless you give me strength, I'm nothing but a crippled and limited individual. But by your grace, we can rise up and we can sing and we can dance and we can hope as we never have before. Well, let's pray. And as we pray, the ushers can come. The worship team can come on up. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We're thankful for this moment in David's life when he illustrates for us, perhaps he didn't realize it at the time, but he illustrates for us in a most dramatic display of grace that is most poignantly and perfectly seen only in the grace you would show us in your Son, Yeshua, our Messiah, and our Savior. So, Father, we pray that we would, number one, be receptive to the grace you have shown in that you have sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, into our world to provide that grace which we need. But then we would pray, O Lord, that you would move on our own hearts and you would enable us to be something like, somewhat like David himself, showing grace to one another and thereby exhibiting the great love of our Savior that has been shed abroad in our own hearts. We bless you, O Lord, for you alone are worthy. We worship you, our King, for you are master of our universe. And we pay you homage as we seek to follow you, to walk in your ways, to obey you. For only by your grace can we do such a thing. And in doing such a thing, it is the least that we might do for you. For we pray in Yeshua's name, for his honor, for his glory. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.